Thanks, Kevin. So at the end of the book of Genesis, uh, well, in the beginning, toward the beginning of Genesis, uh, God makes a promise, a covenant with Abram. Right? He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. You'll have more descendants than the stars in the sky, sand in the seashore. I'm going to give you this land that he took him from his family's land and took him to this land of Canaan. He said, you're going to be a sojourner here, but this is going to be the land that you have. This will be your family's, this will be your descendants' land. This will be, you'll all exist here and thrive here. Well, at the end of the book of Genesis, that plan seems to be in jeopardy a little bit. At the end of the book of Genesis, the Jewish people of which we know now today around the world, millions of people that are Jew, of the Jewish uh, descent and faith, right, and of that nation. Um, but at the end of Genesis, there were 70 of them. All right. Uh, Seventy of them. We have Abraham, then Isaac and then Jacob. Jacob had his 12 sons. So we're what, three generations in. And it's 70 people um, that make up this tribe of Israel, these Jewish people, these Hebrews, as they're called, um, that will be the descendants um, that God has promised Abraham. And so they're in Egypt because uh, 10 of the brothers sold one of their brother, Joseph, into slavery. They got the brother of the year award for that one. And uh, they took, he went to Egypt. He was sold into slavery and he rose up to second in command of all of Egypt. And as you know, the story, the family was going to starve. So they went to Egypt to get some bread and grain. And so Joseph was there and he welcomed it in. He revealed who he was. And he's like, God did this. He God used what you, you what you did. He used it for good. Right. You meant it for evil. God used it for good. And so they're in Egypt and there's 70 people. But then Joseph dies out. And guess who also dies? The Pharaoh at the time. And so Pharaoh and Joseph, they had this good relationship. Things were going well, but both of them died out. And so the Jewish people are in this land of Goshen that's in Egypt, not in the promised land. And there's 70 of them. And then they start to populate, dare I say, like rabbits. They start to just go crazy and they're just having numbers after numbers. And, and God's promise to Abram is coming true. He's making them a great nation. People are multiplying and multiplying to the point that the new Pharaoh says, wait a second, this isn't good. If this continues to happen, one day these people are going to turn on us and we're going to be serving them. They're going to take over our nation. And so he decided that they were going to take the Israelites, the Hebrew people, as slaves for themselves. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how that took place, but I'm guessing that Pharaoh took his troops, his army, probably went into the land of Goshen and probably just started yanking the men away and said, you're going with us, put them in shackles and all that kind of stuff and drug them back to Egypt to start making bricks for them. I'm guessing that's probably what happened. I can't imagine they went knocking on doors and saying, um, excuse me, but we'd like to make you a slave now. And they're like, oh, OK, that sounds like a good idea. This was probably a forceful thing, not a pretty thing. And so they went to Egypt, started making bricks for Pharaoh. He thought that that might squelch the population. Surely after making bricks seven days a week, 24 hours a day, that you just weren't going to be able to do the rabbit thing anymore, right? Um, but that didn't work that way, right? God continued to multiply them. They continued to grow and grow and grow. And so Pharaoh had to come up with another plan. And his plan was these midwives that are going to help these Hebrew women deliver babies. You need to kill those babies when they come out of the womb. Seems to go against some kind of Hippocratic oath, if I were to guess. Maybe they didn't have it at the time. But the Hebrew midwives were more afraid of God. Did I say that right? Hippocratic oath? Did that sound right? Anyway, um, the Hebrew women, they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. Big lesson in that, right? And so they weren't, they weren't killing the babies. To the point that Pharaoh brought them in. He's like, what are you doing? I thought we had a plan. I thought we were on the same page. 
And they're like, you know, it's the funniest thing, Pharaoh, that uh, we get there and these kids are already toddlers when they come out. They're like running right out of the womb. It's crazy. Uh, Okay, it doesn't say that. But it says that they're coming out. They're delivering so quickly, so fast. By the time we get there, they're already out. What are we supposed to do? So then Pharaoh comes up with with another plan. I'll read the scripture in a minute. But his second plan was to kill all the Hebrew baby boys. And then... uh, In Exodus, we turn the page to Exodus, chapter uh, 1, Exodus chapter 2. What we see is that there was this one lady who gave birth to a son. And yes, that son was supposed to die, but she saw that there was something special about him. And his name was? Yeah, Moses. And so we're going to look at um, some attributes, some things that happened to Moses in the life of Moses. um, And we're going to see this comparison And I want you to kind of pay attention as we go through this to the comparisons between Moses and Jesus. All right. The comparisons between Moses and Jesus. But we want to look at some things that took place in Moses's life. Right. So God's divine appointment of Moses. That's what we want to look at first. God's divine appointment of Moses. Well, as I mentioned, they continued to grow in number and Pharaoh came up with this plan in Exodus 1 Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is, be, is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. All right. It was a lucky day for the girls. Not so good of a day for the boys. Uh, but the boys were going to be thrown into the Nile. Well, as I mentioned, Moses' mother gave birth to him. She saw that there was something special about the boy. That's what the Bible tells us. I don't know exactly what that means. If he came out with a superhero cape on or a mask, I don't know. I don't know how you look at a baby. You and I, we've we've all looked at babies when they first come out. And let's be honest, you know, E.T. looks more, you know, kind of, that's just the way. I mean, they get beautiful real quick. Don't get me wrong. I'm not one of those guys. But when they first come out, but there was something about him that she's like, wow, this is pretty crazy. And so she decides to put him in a basket and put him by the Nile in the reeds. And as the story goes, um, his sister went and watched all this take place as well and kept an eye on Moses. Right. She's instructed to do that. And um, it just so happened, I'd say God's divine appointment, that Pharaoh's daughter came uh, to bathe and she had her servants with her. And they noticed this basket in the reeds. And so they they bring the basket over um, and they say, what is this? And she, they're like, it's a Hebrew child. It's a Hebrew baby. And the princess decides that she's going to take it home and raise him as her own. Um, I can't imagine what that conversation with dad was like. Um, hey, dad, um, I'm going to bring this Hebrew baby that you ordered to be killed. I'm going to adopt him into our family. Is that OK? And um, now, how many of you are the princess of the family where dad will give you anything that you want? How many of you have a princess in your family that gets whatever they want? And it's probably you. You just don't want to admit to it. Yeah. And so uh, I don't know that conversation, but it's probably like, Daddy, I get whatever I want. Okay, you can have this uh, toy baby. And so she takes home uh, Moses. But anyway, this is the greatest scheme ever is that this uh, sister of Moses came over and said, what? She's like, you do you want me to take this baby to one of the Hebrew women and she can nurse him? And then when he's ready to be weaned and ready to go, they'll bring him back and you can raise him. Did you catch that? You have a baby, you nurse him. And then when he's ready to eat the steak and potatoes, somebody else is going to pay for all that food. Now, that's a deal to sign up for, isn't it? Right. And so that's what took place. She went home and uh, what we see in Exodus 2.10, when the child grew older, Moses, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, when Moses goes in to be raised in Pharaoh's home and he was there about 40 years, what do you think the things are that Moses was able to receive? The best of everything. 
Right. The training, the education, warfare, strategy, um, how to fight. Everything that you could possibly imagine, the world leader was having him instructed. And even if he was like treated as the redheaded stepchild, I was a redhead. I can say that once upon a time. Okay. Um, Even if he was treated that way, he probably could even look and see or hang out with Pharaoh's other kids and and, uh, glean whatever was coming out. And so he got to receive all of that stuff while he's being raised. I would suggest that God had him in that time to be able to learn all those things for what God had had planned for him. Well, after about 40 years, Moses looks outside and he sees a Hebrew, I'm sorry, an Egyptian um, beating up a Hebrew slave. And so Moses intervenes and he kills the Egyptian and he buries him in the sand trying to cover up this murder. Well, the next day he goes out and he sees two Hebrew slaves uh, going at each other, fighting. And he enters in and he's like, what are you doing? I mean, we're supposed to be in this together. We're united. We're family here. We're one nation. We, we can't afford to be infighting like this. And the Hebrew Hebrew guys look at him and say, what are you going to do? Kill us like you did the Egyptian. Well, at that point, Moses knew, Okay, this is known. Somebody has told on me. Somebody saw this and Pharaoh's going to try to kill me. And sure enough, the Bible tells us that Pharaoh was going to try to kill him. And so he fled to this place called Midian. All right. He fled to Midian. Um, He was uh, there at Midian. He met this guy and the guy had daughters. He fell in love with the daughters and he married one of his daughters and became basically a shepherd um, watching over the guy's flocks for another 40 years. Well, in Exodus 2, 23 through 25, it says during those many days, the king of Egypt died. All right. So this Pharaoh that was out to kill Moses, he died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. So apparently the new king of Egypt was not any nicer to them. And uh, they groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from God, um, from slavery, came up to God. Their cry out for relieve us of this slavery. We hate it. We don't like this stuff. And all their prayers rose up to God. And God heard their groaning. And I, I just love that visual, don't you? That when we pray, that God hears that. All right. God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And what was his promise? Not just that all the descendants would be happening, but that they would have this land, this promised land that he had promised to give to Abraham. When hearing all these cries and everything that goes up um, and Moses is out tending sheep and he's on this mountain, mountain Mount Horeb, which would be um, a very well-known mountain that will come into play as they're journeying across to the promised land. Um, But uh, while he's up there, he sees this phenomenon that this bush is on fire, but it's not burning up. Right. You've heard this story. And the Bible is kind of funny in that it says, and Moses looked and saw, hum, let me go see what this bush is that's burning up, but not that's on fire, but not burning up. Um, I think it was more like, whoa, that's cool. (laughs) I got to go check that out. I mean, let's admit it. Any of us guys, we're out there and we see a bush that's on fire and it's not burning. You want to go check it out, right? Am I wrong? Anybody with me? Yeah. You want to go check that out. And so uh, he went over to check it out and a voice came and said, Moses, take your shoes off because you're standing on hallowed ground. And God himself was speaking to Moses through this burning bush. And this is what the Lord said. I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. In other words, I'm going to 
fulfill the promise that I made to Abraham because I'm a God that keeps my promises. I listen to my people. I want to dwell with my people. I want to take care of my people. And so after what the Bible tells us will be 430 years in Egypt, many of those, most of those in slavery, God has heard their cries and the time is right. The time is right to rescue them. And so then uh, God looks at Moses. Well, doesn't look at Moses. He talks to Moses and he says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. I'm choosing you, Moses, to do this awesome thing. I'm choosing you. God spoke directly to him and said, you're the guy. I don't know if like a, a finger uh, or a fire shaped like a finger came out of the burning bush saying, yes, you, I'm talking to you. That would be cool. It doesn't say it does it, but I, I think that would be cool. But he's like, I'm choosing you. Have you ever been in a situation with a, a boss like three levels above you? You didn't even think that they knew your name. And they said, hey, I want you to give this project to Andy. And Andy's like, whoa, they even know who I am? And they had a special project to do. And so you're like, get all excited to say, well, this would be a good thing for my career to, to go through this and get all excited about this. This is what God is saying to Moses. Moses, I'm choosing you. All the millions of people that are Hebrews, I'm choosing you. And you would think that Moses' response would be, of course, better, which I think that we all know that it wasn't. In Exodus 3.11, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Why me? Why me? I don't want to do this. It sounds dangerous. I spent 40 years there. They still think I'm a murderer. They don't want to listen to me. In Exodus 3.13, Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me what is his name, what will I tell them? He's making another excuse. I don't even know who to tell them who sent me. They're not going to believe me. Exodus 4.1, Moses answered, But behold, they won't believe me. They won't listen to my voice. They'll say, the Lord did not appear to you. He's already answering for the people of Israel to say, this is not going to work. This is your great plan. You've heard them crying out and this is the best that you've got. You're going to send me. I don't want to go. In Exodus 4.10, Moses said, the Lord, oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent. Either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Moses doesn't want to go. You would think that God would have got that message. But he continues to say, no, Moses, you're the guy. God's call was under hostility. It was under hostility and that the Egyptians were trying to oppress the Israelites and put them to work. It was defined. It defined or it definitely was God's leading in that God said, Moses, I want to choose you. And I've heard their cries and we make this happen. And it absolutely was met with resistance. So the first things we see about Moses was that he fled. He thought, I'm just going to live out my days dying as a shepherd. And I guess I'll just have to leave my people, my family behind. But when God calls him, he just doesn't want to go. It's the first things we learn about Moses is that, man, he sure does need some training. Well, then what Moses got to experience was God's miraculous rescue of Israel. He got to experience God's miraculous rescue of Israel. So Moses... After God says, all right, I'll send Aaron. He'll be your spokesperson. And he has the staff thing. And he throws it down, turns into a snake, picks it back up, goes back to a staff. Got the whole leprosy thing that that went through. Sorry, I'm doing Reader's Digest here. You can go back and read that if you like. But anyway, they go into Egypt and they meet with the people of Israel. 
Right? He gathers all the people of Israel. I don't know if it's just the leaders or all million of them or however many there are. But he meets with the people of Israel and he told them everything that God said. And this is what he said to the people of Israel. He's explaining what God had given to him to give to them. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So Moses stirs up the people. He's like, this is what God told me. He's like, I'm going right to Pharaoh and I'm saying Israel is God's firstborn son. He's to be given to me. Let us go. And if you don't, I'm going to kill his first, your firstborn son. And you can imagine the people were just stirred up and they're excited, right? They're encouraged by this. In fact, in 431, it says, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel so that they heard that God had come to visit them, that he heard their cries and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and did what? They worshipped. They bowed their heads and worshipped. They were so amazed and so dumbfounded that the God of the universe would hear their cries, hear their prayers, and would actually come to visit them, that they bowed their heads and they worshipped. Well, after that, Moses had to be encouraged by this, right? I mean, he was afraid that they were going to say, who sent you? What's this all about? And Moses, you're crazy. He did not send you. We're not listening to you. We're not going to do whatever you say, Moses. But instead, they're all stirred up. They bowed and worshiped because they heard this message that God's going to deliver them. That Moses and Aaron had to just be just ready to go, right? Like the pep talk you get in the locker room when you're getting ready to go tear the other team's heads off. You're like, yeah, let's go. We can do this, right? I mean, that's the kind of stirring up there had to be. And so they go to Pharaoh in chapter 5, verse 1. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. That's what God said, Pharaoh. And after being all stirred up and all excited and all encouraged and ready to go and ready to fight and just to say, let my people go, Pharaoh says what? Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't even know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. I'm not going to do it, Moses. I'm not going to do it. Who do you think you are? I don't know this guy you're talking about. We serve all kinds of gods around here. Right? In fact, they serve me as a god. He's like, I'm not letting these people go. And so uh, Pharaoh decided. Um, and Moses said to Pharaoh, sorry. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. And so he continues to plea his argument and say, listen, Pharaoh, now that I've said, God said, let us go. And you're saying, I don't know him. Now Moses is going to appeal to him and say, listen, we're going to die if you don't let us go. Right. He switches gears a little bit. It's like, let us go or God is going to kill us. And so what does Pharaoh do? No, you're not going. In fact, he calls in his taskmasters. And what did he say to them? I know we've been giving them all the resources to make their bricks. Now you make them go to Lowe's. You make them go to Home Depot. You make them go to Menards. Take their own pickup trucks. Use their own gas. And by the way, they better make the same number of bricks. I was just kidding. Those businesses hadn't been created yet. I was just kind of making that part up. Did you catch that? Okay. Anyway, you make them make the same number of bricks as they always have, but they have to go gather their own resources. And so his strategy went from, oh, yeah, you want to rally up the troops? I'll show you how to discourage the troops. In Exodus 5.21, it's exactly what happened. 
When Moses and Aaron went to the people, the people approached them and they said, The Lord look on you and judge, Moses and Aaron, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses is learning a really big lesson right now. It seemed like everything was going to work out really easily and ironed out. Things go quickly. Go in, let my people go. God's going to strike you dead. You better do this. Nope, not going to do it. Wait a second, what? And then the people start grumbling. Wait a second, what? You were all excited the other day. No, we're not excited anymore, Moses. And so Moses is having to learn some tough lessons. And he's about to learn that God will do what God wants to do. We had the ten ten plagues that happened. You know these, right? Water turning to blood, frogs, lice, flies, livestock, pestilence, boils, hail, locusts, darkness. Which one will drive you the most crazy? The boils? The lice thing? We've not... Knock on wood, had that in our home. I'm probably not supposed to knock on wood as a preacher, but I never had that in my home. I think that would be awful, right? And the frogs and the fly thing, all of that would be just awful, right? But basically, it just ripped apart Egypt. I mean, it just made it a desolate wasteland. He just wiped all this stuff out. And then, of course, the final one was the killing of the firstborn children. The killing of the firstborn children, we know the story um, that God said, Listen, I'm going to wipe out the firstborn of all animals and people. But if you want to avoid that, Israelites, you take a one-year-old lamb, you sacrifice it, you roast it, make sure you're ready to leave so you can eat it quickly, but take the blood of that lamb and do what? Put it over the doorpost of your house, and then when the angel of death comes, he will pass over you, and you'll be rescued. And this, of course, was set up as the Passover that will be celebrated for ages to come. In Exodus 12:13, it says, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God miraculously delivers the people of Israel. He had made them favorable to the Egyptians, and so they got all their jewels and all their gold and everything. And God said, all right, the time is now. And so they started to leave. Estimates are somewhere between 1.8 and 2 million people. I don't know how they came up with those estimates, but there's a whole bunch of people that now are leaving Egypt to take off to go to the promised land to worship and serve the one true living God. Well, Pharaoh wasn't going to put up with this. He realized all the slaves were leaving. There's this vengeance in his heart, all these kinds of things. So he decides to chase after them. And the Israelites see the Egyptians coming. And so then the Israelites are filled with joy and happiness, right? No, they're mad. They're discouraged. They're frustrated. Moses, did you bring us out here just to let them annihilate us right here? What's going to happen here? We're just going to die right here, Moses. Well, in Exodus 13, it says, The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. And then, so God's leading them with the cloud and the fire, but then when they see the Egyptians coming, and they're on horses and chariots, it says the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel, he moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. In other words, God continued to miraculously deliver them. They got to the Red Sea. They got to the Red Sea. What do they do then? What are you doing, Moses? To come out here to drown us? You just want us to jump in and swim? What's the plan now? And we know the plan. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night. And made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. Can you imagine being there that day and watching that happen? 
I mean, I know we've seen Charlton Heston's version of it, and it was pretty cool then. But can you imagine actually being there and watching the God of the universe have this wind come and push the waters aside so you can walk across, not on mucky, icky you know, land where you're losing your sandals every step you take. It's a dry land. God did that so the people of Israel could go across. God miraculously delivered Israel. So Moses and his training and his being the deliverer for Israel got to experience all these amazing things that one, even though he was resistant, God said, I'm choosing you, an unlikely hero, an unlikely person for this task, but I'm choosing you. And then he showed them, and when I choose you to do something, and when I have a plan to take place, it takes place, regardless of how many miracles it takes. Well, then we have God's training through this journey. The people grumble and complain. As you can imagine, if you have 1.9 million people in any one given place, someone's going to be upset about something, right? We have a church of 400, and somebody's always upset about something. I can only imagine how many people were upset in 1.9 million people. But they grumbled and complained along the way. And uh, the Lord said to Moses, one time they were asking for bread. They did it with water as well. Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. The people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Moses' training was not just in watching God work miracles, but it was also in saying God's going to test our faith even in giving us bread. And the testing of the faith was go out and gather what you need every day. But don't gather more than you need, because if you do, it's going to have maggots and all kinds of nasty stuff in it. And that's what happened is some people didn't trust God. And then on the sixth day, you can gather two days worth and that stuff will be fresh. And you just got to trust me. And God continued to to test his people and to test their faith. And Moses experienced what that looked like to lead these people, listen to their grumbling and complaining, but to trust God even as he tested his people. Another training moment that Moses had was his father-in-law, Jethro, brought back his wife and kids to Moses. And uh, he got up one day and they had a feast for him and everything. Well, the next day it says when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people. So Moses would come out, he'd sit on his chair, and all these people would line up with all their complaints. He was the complaint department. And they would come by and say, fix this for me. Right? When Jethro saw all that he was doing, all these cool names in the Bible, and his father-in-law's name is Jethro. That's kind of cool, huh? Uh, All that he was doing for the people, he said, what's this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. Jethro says, what you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. You're not going to move 100 yards from this spot. You will never answer all the complaints of two million people. You'll certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Huge training and uh, moment for Moses. He says, moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands of hundreds of fifties and of tens. So Jethro basically says, Moses, let me help you understand how you're going to get the people from here to there. You need another layer of leadership. You need multiple layers of leadership. This is the, these are the kind of men you need to look for to put in those spots to be able to handle these things. And you handle only the drastically important things that have to come across your plate. So Moses is being trained as he leads the people across the wilderness. Moses experienced God's call. He experienced being used by God in a miraculous way. He experienced leading when he felt inadequate. He experienced le- rescuing a people. And God promised another that is to come. 
In Leviticus, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, so after Moses is leading the people and he's taking them across to Canaan, he says, the Lord your God, this is his message from God he's given to the Israelites, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among your bro- their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. In other words, the people of Israel didn't want to approach God. Their experience with that was earthquakes and smoke coming out of mountains. And they're like, Moses, you talk to God. We don't want anything to do with him. And Moses, when you die, what's going to happen next? And Moses said, God told me he's going to raise up another, another prophet for you who will speak the words that I give to him. Another prophet that will come to rescue so that you don't have to go to the mountain, that you don't have to be frightened to death, that there will be another mediator between you and God. And who, of course, is that person that was to come? Jesus. It's Jesus. God's promise is fulfilled in Jesus. This promise that he made in Deuteronomy is fulfilled in Jesus. If you think about the comparisons, Moses and Jesus were both born under the rule of a murderous tyrant. Right? We looked at Moses um, in Matthew 2. We see that Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old and under because of what the wise men had told them. They were both born under this tyranny. Moses and Jesus were both tested in the wilderness. Moses was tested with all the grumbling and complaining people. Jesus, in Matthew 4.1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Moses and Jesus both asked for a way out. Moses was like, I don't want to be the guy. I can't do this. I'm not eloquent enough. Matthew twenty six thirty nine. going a little farther, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So you have all these comparisons between Moses and Jesus, and that Jesus would be a rescuer for all time that would come from the family, from the line of these Israelites to come. And so we can we can compare Jesus and Moses and all the things and the leadership and all the things they experienced. But there's a big difference between Jesus and Moses. And the big difference comes in a snake. A snake was the difference. In Numbers chapter 21, from Mount Hor, they sent out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food, no water. We loathe this worthless food. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. I don't like snakes. Do you like snakes? I'm like terrified of snakes. Even if it's just those big black ones, I don't like, I don't like snakes. Anyway, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. They bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Kids, next time you argue about what mom puts on your plate and tells you to eat, remember the story. The people came to Moses and said, we've sinned. They repent for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, that snake on a pole, they shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent 
and live. I think this is an illustration of what we experience today when it comes to us being, quote-unquote, snake-bitten in our life and in our world. We all deal with all kinds of miseries, all kinds of valleys, all kinds of difficult situations in our life. And we look a lot of different places for help and for healing in those situations. Many people turn to pop culture authors. Some people look to TV shows. Some people look to TV preachers. People look to all kinds of things to heal them. People look to drugs. People look to pornography. People look to all these different things to say, I want to be healed of this snake-bitten life that I'm living. But this is where the difference between Moses and Jesus is, is that Jesus uses this whole snake story as an example in John chapter 3. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, as Jesus talking, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. In other words, what Jesus is saying, the difference between Moses and myself is that people couldn't look to Moses and be healed. They had to look to something that God told them to do. But now, when you and I look to Jesus, that's when healing takes place. That's when healing takes place. That when we're feeling the snake-bitten life that we live, and we're wondering where hope is coming from, and what we're supposed to do, and the steps we're supposed to take, and how healing can possibly come for us in this life, we don't look to a serpent, we don't look to Moses, we don't look to whoever else is popular out there to listen to all their things about how you can take care of you. We look to Jesus. Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Listen, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We look to Jesus. We've been called or appointed We've been miraculously rescued by Jesus on the cross. We're being trained in righteousness. Our response can be to grumble, complain, reject, make excuses, or we can simply look to Jesus. The people of Israel were being miraculously rescued by God, taken to this promised land, a land flowing of milk and honey, and all they did is grumble and complain the whole way instead of what? Looking to God. And when they took their eyes off God for a second, complaining about the food, he sent the fiery serpents. He's like, all right, give them something to look at. But it wasn't look at Moses. It was look at something that God had created and God had instructed. And when God said another prophet is coming, um, and he's speaking this through Moses to the people. He wasn't talking about another person to listen to their good advice and to set up more bronze statues and things so that they can look at and be healed. No, the next prophet that was to come was Jesus. And what we need to be trained in our righteousness is that there are all kinds of things the world want to distract us with and to look at to find healing. But there's only one place to go for healing, and it's Jesus. It's Jesus. So whatever snake-bitten thing in your life is seeming to drag you down, if you feel like you're in your Egypt or you feel like you're in your wilderness and you're looking for this promised land that God has in mind for you, my encouragement is... Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He not only can bring healing in this life, but he absolutely will bring eternal healing so that we can be with God the Father forever and ever in the true promised land we're looking forward to. Father, 
we thank you for giving us a way to be reconciled to you through Jesus. And Father, when we read the Old Testament, we hear about and read about all these Bible greats and how you use these people to lead the people of Israel and all the grumbling and complaining takes place. Uh, Father, it's just a reminder to us that we too are living in this wilderness, that we're trying to get to the promised land. And we have choices to make. We can grumble and complain. We can reject that you're showing us a way. We can reject your leadership in our life. Or we can simply just look to Jesus. And that's my prayer, Lord God. That every day we would look to Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith. May we trust you as we follow you and watch you work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand? Let's sing.